0: Welcome to Voices of Church Pass with your host, Rob Barnhart. Today we'll be reading from one of Martin Luther's sermons, the first Sunday in Advent. It is on the text, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 9. This gospel encourages and demands faith, for it prefigures Christ coming with grace, Whom none may receive or accept, save he who believes him to be the man, and has the mind as his gospel portrays in Christ. Nothing but the mercy, tenderness, and kindness of Christ are here shown, and he who so receives and believes on him is saved. He sits not upon a proud steed, an animal of war, nor does he come in great pomp and power, but sitting upon an ass, an animal of peace, fit not only for burdens and labor and a help to man. He indicates this by uh, that he comes not to frighten man, nor to drive or crush him, but to help him to carry his burden for him. And although it was the custom of the country to ride on asses and to use horses for war, the scriptures often tell us, Yet, here, the object is to show that the entrance of this king shall be meek and lowly. Again, it also shows pomp and conduct of the disciples towards Christ, who bring the cult to Christ, set him thereupon, and spread their garments in the way. Also of that of the multitude, who also spread their garments in the way and cut branches from trees. They manifested no fear nor terror, but only blessed confidence in him as one for whom they dared to do such things, and who would take it kindly and readily consent to it. Again he begins his journey and comes to the Mount of Olives to indicate that he comes out of pure mercy, for olive oil in Scripture signifies the grace of God that soothes and strengthens the soul, as oil soothes and strengthens the body. Thirdly, there is no armor present, no war cry, but songs and praise, rejoicing and thanksgiving to the Lord. Fourthly, Christ weeps as Luke... Nineteen forty-one writes weeps over Jerusalem because she does not know nor receive grace. Yet he was so grieved at her loss that he did not deal harshly with her. Fifthly, his goodness and mercy are best shown when he quotes the words of the prophets Isaiah sixty-two eleven and Zechariah nine nine. tenderly invites men to believe and accept Christ, for the fulfilling of which prophecies the events of this gospel took place. The story was written, as the evangelist himself testifies. Therefore, we must look upon this verse as the chief part of this gospel, for in it, Christ is pictured to us. We are told what we are to believe and to expect of him, what we are to seek in him, and how we may be benefited by him. First, he says, tell ye, the daughter of Zion, this is said to the ministry and a new sermon is given them to preach. Namely, nothing but what the words following indicate, a right knowledge of Christ. Whoever preaches anything else is a wolf and a deceiver. This is one of the verses in which the gospel is promised, of which Paul writes in Romans 1-2. For the gospel is a sermon from Christ, as he is here placed before us, calling for faith in him. I have often said that there are two kinds of faith. First, a faith in which you indeed believe that Christ is such a man as he is described and proclaimed here. And in all the Gospels, but do not believe that he is such a man for you, and are in doubt whether you have any part in him, and think, yes, he is such a man to others, to Peter, to Paul, and the saints, but who knows that he is such to me, that I may expect the same from him, and may confide in it, as these saints did. Behold, this faith is nothing. It does not receive Christ nor enjoy Him. Neither can it feel any love and affection for Him or from Him. It is a faith about Christ and not in or of Christ, a faith which the devils also have as well as evil men. For who is it that does not believe that Christ is a gracious king to the saints? This vain and wicked faith is now taught by the pernicious synagogues of Satan. The universities, Paris, and their sister schools, together with the monasteries and all the papists, say that this faith is sufficient to make Christians. In this way, they virtually deny Christian faith. Make heathen and Turks out of Christians as St. Peter and 2 Peter there shall be false teachers who shall privily bring in destructive heresies, denying even the master that bought them. In the second place, he particularly mentions the daughter of Zion. In these words, he refers to the other, the true faith. For if he commands that the following words concerning Christ be proclaimed, there must come one to hear, to receive, and to treasure them in firm faith. He does not say, tell the, of the daughter of Zion, as if someone were to believe that she has Christ. But to her you are to say that she is to believe it, of herself, and not in any wise doubt that it will be fulfilled, as the words declare. That alone can be called Christian faith, which believes without wavering that Christ is the Savior, not only to Peter and to the saints, but also to you. Your salvation does not depend on the fact that you believe Christ to be the Savior of the godly, but that He is Savior to you and has become your own. Such a faith will work in you love for Christ. And joy in him, and good works will naturally follow. If they do not, faith is surely not present, for where faith is, there the Holy Spirit is, and must work love and good works. This faith is condemned by the apostate and rebellious Christians, the Pope. Bishops, priests, monks, and universities, they call it arrogance to desire to be like the saints. Thereby they fulfill the prophecy of Peter in Second Peter 2, where he says of the false teachers, By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. For this reason, when they hear faith praise, they think, Love, and good works are prohibited. In their great blindness, they do not know what faith, love, and good works are. If you would be a Christian, you must p- permit these words to be spoken to you and hold fast to them. Believe without a doubt that you will experience what they say. You must not consider it arrogance. In this that you are like the saints, but rather a necessary humility and despair, not of God's grace, but of your own worthiness. Under penalty of the loss of salvation, does God ask for boldness towards His pro-offered grace? If you do not desire to become holy like the saints, where will you abide? That would be arrogance if you desire to be saved by your own merit and works, as the papists teach. They call that arrogance which is faith, that faith which is arrogance, poor, miserable, deluded people. If you believe in Christ and his advent, it is the highest praise and thanks to God be holy. If you recognize love and magnify his grace and work in you, and cast aside and condemn self and the works of self, then you are a Christian. We say, I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. Do you desire to be part of the Holy Christian Church and the communion of saints? You must also be holy as she is, yet not of yourself, but through Christ alone, in whom all are holy. Thirdly, he says, behold, with this word he rouses us at once from sleep and unbelief as though he had something great, strange, or remarkable to offer, something we have long wished for, now would receive with joy. Such waking up is necessary for the reason that everything that concerns faith is against reason and nature. For example, how can nature and reason comprehend that such a one should be king of Jerusalem? Who enters in such poverty and humility as to ride upon a borrowed ass? How does such an advent become great, become a great king? But faith is of the nature that it does not judge nor reason by what it sees or feels, but, but by what it hears. It depends upon the word alone, not on vision or sight. For this reason, Christ was received as a king only by the followers of the word of the prophet, by the believers in Christ by those who judge and receive his kingdom, not by sight, but by the Spirit. These are the true daughters of Zion, for it is not possible for those not to be offended in Christ, who walk by sight and feeling, and do not adhere firmly to the word. Let us receive first and hold fast this picture in which the nature of faith is placed before us, for as the appearance and object of faith as here presented, is contrary to nature and reason, so the same ineffectual and unreasonable appearance is to be found in all articles and instances of faith. It would be no faith if it appeared and acted as faith acts, and as the words indicate, it is faith because it does not appear and deport itself as faith. And as the words declare, if Christ had entered in splendor like a king of earth, the appearance in the words would have been according to nature and reason. and would have seemed to the eye according to the words. But then there would have been no room for faith. He who believes in Christ must find riches in poverty, honor and dishonor, joy and sorrow, life and death, and hold fast to them. In that faith, which clings to the word and expects such things. Fourthly, thy king. Here he distinguishes this king from all other kings. It is thy king, he says, who was promised to you. Whose own you are. Who alone shall direct you. Yet in spirit and not in the body. It is he... For whom you have yearned from the beginning, whom the fathers have desired to see, who will deliver you from all that has hitherto burdened and troubled and held you captive. Oh, this is a a wonderful, comforting word to the believing heart. For without Christ, man is subjected in many raging tyrants, who are not kings but murderers, at whose hand he suffers great misery and fear. These are the devil the flesh, the world, sin, and also the law, and eternal death, by all of which the troubled conscience is burdened, under bondage, and lives in anguish. For where there is sin, there is no clear conscience. Where there is no clear conscience, there is a life of uncertainty, an unquenchable fear of death and hell, in the presence of which no real joy can exist in the heart, as Leviticus 26.36 says, The sound of a driven leaf shall chase them. Where the heart receives the king with a firm faith, it is secure and does not fear sin, death, hell, nor any other evil. For he well knows and no wise doubts that this king is the Lord of life and death, of sin and grace, of hell and heaven, and of all things that are in his hand. For this reason he became our king, came down to us, that he might deliver us from the tyrants and rule over us himself alone therefore he who is under this king cannot be harmed either by sin death hell satan man or any other creature as his king lives without sin and is blessed so must he be kept forever without sin and death in living blessedness see such great things are contained in these seemingly unimportant words behold thy king such boundless gifts are brought by this poor and despised king all this reason does not understand, nor nature comprehend, but faith alone does. Therefore he is called thy king, thine who art vexed and harassed by sin, Satan, death and hell, the flesh and the world, so that thou mayest be governed and directed in the grace, in the spirit, in life in heaven, and God. With this word, therefore he demands faith in order that you may be certain that he is such a king to you has such a kingdom and has come and is proclaimed for this purpose if you do not believe this of him you will never acquire such faith by any works of yours what will what you think of him you will have what you expect of him you will find and as you believe so it shall be to you he will still remain what he is the king of life of grace and of salvation whether he is believed on or not fifthly he cometh without a doubt you do not come to him and bring him to you. He is too high, too far from you. With all your effort, work, and labor, you cannot come to him, lest you boast, as though you had received him by your own merit and worthiness. No, dear friend, all merit and worthiness is out of the question, and there is nothing but the merit and unworthiness on your side. Nothing but grace and mercy on his. The poor and the rich here come together, as Proverbs 22 2 says. But this all... Uh, By this are condemned all those infamous doctrines of free will, by which come from the Pope, universities, and monasteries. For all their teaching consists in that we are to begin and lay the first stone. We should, by the power of free will... First seek God, come to Him, run after Him, and acquire His grace. Beware, beware of this poison. It is nothing but the doctrine of devils by which all the world is betrayed. Before you can cry to God and seek Him, God must first come to you. and must have found you, as Paul says in Romans 10:14 through 15 How then shall they call on Him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? God must lay the first stone and begin with you. If you are to seek him and pray to him, he is present with when you begin to seek. If he were not, you could not accomplish anything but mere sin. And the greater the sin, the greater and holier the work you will attempt and you will become a hardened hypocrite. You ask, how shall we begin to be godly? What shall we do that God may begin his work in us? Answer, you do not understand. It is not for you to work or to begin to be godly, as little as it is to further and complete it. Everything that you begin is in and remains sin, though it shines ever so brightly. You cannot do anything but sin. Do what you will. Hence the teaching of all the schools and monasteries are misleading. When they teach man to begin to pray and to do good works, to find... Find something to give, to sing, to become spiritual. They thereby seek God's grace. You say, however, then I must sin from necessity. If by my free will I work and live without God, and I could not avoid sin no matter what I would do. Answer, truly it is so that you must remain in sin, do what you will, and that everything is sin you do alone out of your own free will. For if out of your own free will you might avoid sin and do that which pleases God, What need would you have of Christ? He would be a fool to shed his blood for your sin. If you yourself were so free and able to do what ought then is not sin, from this you learn how the universities and monasteries with their teachings of free will and good works do nothing else but darken the truth of God so that we know not what Christ is, what we are, what our condition is. They lead the whole world with them into the abyss of hell. Is indeed time that we eradicate from earth all chapters and monasteries. Learn then from this gospel what takes place when God begins to make us godly and what the first step is in becoming godly. There is no other beginning than that your king comes to you and begins to work in you. It is done in this way. The gospel must be first This must be preached and heard. In it you hear and learn how all your works count for nothing before God, and that everything is sinful that you do and work. Your king must first be in you and rule you. Behold, here is the beginning of your salvation. You relinquish your works and despair of yourself, because you hear and see that all you do is sin and amounts to nothing. As the gospel tells you, you receive your king in faith. Cling to him, implore his grace, and find consolation in his mercy alone. But when you hear and accept this, It is not your power, but God's grace that renders the gospel fruitful in you, so that you believe that you and your works are nothing, for you see how few there are who accept it, so that Christ weeps over Jerusalem, and as now the papists are doing, not only refuse it, but condemn such doctrine, for they will not have all the works to be sin. They desire to lay the first stone and rage and fume against the gospel. Again, it is not by virtue of your power, or your merit, that the gospel is preached and your king comes. God must send him out of pure grace. Hence, not greater wrath of God exists than where he does not send the gospel. There is only sin, error, and darkness. There may, the man may do what he will. Again, there is no greater grace than where he sends the gospel. For there must be grace and mercy in his train, even not at all. Perhaps only a few receive it. Thus, the Pope's government is most terrible... Wrath of God, so that Peter calls them the children of excruciation, for they teach no gospel, but mere human doctrine of their own works, as we alas see in all the chapters, monasteries, and schools. This is what is meant by thy king. Cometh, you do not seek him but he seeks you you do not find him he finds you for the preachers come from him not from you their sermons come from him not from you your faith comes from him not from you everything that faith works in you comes from him not from you and where he does not come you remain outside and where there is no gospel there is no god but only sin and damnation free will may do suffer work and live as it may and can Therefore, you should ask where to begin to be godly. There is no beginning, except where the king enters and is proclaimed. Sixthly, he cometh unto thee. Thee, thee, what does this mean? Is Is it not enough that he is your king? If he is yours, how can he say he comes to you? All this is stated by the prophet to present Christ in an enduring way and invite to faith. It is not enough that Christ saves us from the rule and tyranny of sin, death, hell, and becomes our king, but he offers himself to to us for our possession, that whatever he is and has may be ours. As St. Paul writes, Romans 8:32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Hence the daughter of Zion has two full gifts from Christ. The first is faith in the Holy Spirit and in the heart of which she becomes pure and free from sin. The other is Christ himself, that she may glory in the blessing given by Christ, as though everything Christ is and has were her own. And that she may rely upon Christ as upon her own heritage. Of this, St. Uh, Paul speaks, Romans 8, 34, Christ maketh intercession for us. If he maketh intercession for us, he will receive us, and he will receive him as our Lord. In 1 Corinthians 1-30, through 30, Christ was made unto us wisdom from God in the righteous and sanctification and redemption. The twofold gifts, Isaiah speaks in 40 verses 1-2, through 2, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God, speak, Ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished and her iniquity is pardoned for she hath received of Jehovah's hand double for all her sins. Behold, this means that he comes to you for your welfare as your own and that he is your king. You receive grace from him into your heart so that he delivers you from sin and death and thus becomes your king and you as subject. And coming to you, he becomes your own so that you partake of his treasures as a bride. By the jewelry the bridegroom puts on her. Becomes partner of his possessions. Oh, this is joyful. Comforting form of speech. Who would despair and be afraid of death and hell. If he believes in these words. And wins Christ as his own. Seventhly, meek. This word is to be especially noticed, and it comforts the sin-burdened conscience. Sin naturally makes a timid conscience, which fears God and flees as Adam did in paradise. It cannot endure the coming of God and knowing and feeling that God is an enemy of sin, severely punishes it. Hence it flees and is afraid when God is only mentioned, and is concerned lest he... Go at it tooth and nail, in order that such delusion and timidity may not pursue us. He gives us the comforting promise that this king comes meekly. As if he would say, do not flee and despair, for he does not come. Now, as he came to Adam, to Cain, at the flood, at Babel, to Sodom and Gomorrah, nor as he came to the people of Israel, Mount Sinai, he comes not in wrath, does not wish to reckon with you and demand his debt. All wrath is laid aside. Nothing but tenderness and kindness remain. He will now deal with you so that your heart will have pleasure, love, and confidence in him. That henceforth you will... Much more abide with him and find refuge in him than you feared him and fled from him before. Behold, it is nothing but meekness to you. He is a different man. He acts as if he were sorry ever to have made you afraid and caused you to flee from his punishment around. He desires to reassure and comfort you and bring you to himself by love and kindness. This means to speak consolingly to a sin-burdened conscience. This means to preach Christ rightly and to proclaim his gospel. How is it possible that such a form of speech should not make a heart glad and drive away all fear of sin, death, hell? Establish a free, secure, and good conscience that henceforth gladly do all and more than is commanded. The evangelist, however, altered the words of the prophet slightly. The prophet says in Zechariah 9, nine, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, even upon a colt, the fowl of an ass. The, expre- the evangelist expresses the invitation to joy and exultation briefly in these words tell the daughter of Zion. Further on, he leaves out the words, just and having salvation. Again, the prophet says he is lowly. The evangelist says he is meek. The prophet says, upon the cult, the fall of an ass. He mentions the last word in the plural number. The evangelist says, upon the cult, the fall of an ass. That is, used for daily and burden bearing labor. How shall we harmonize these accounts? First, we must keep in mind that the evangelists do not quote the prophets word by word. It is enough for them to have the same meaning and show the fulfillment directly. And it's directing us to the scriptures so that we ourselves may read what they admit. See for ourselves that nothing was written which is not richly fulfilled. It's natural also that he who has the substance and the fulfillment does not care so much for the words. Thus we ought to find that the evangelist's quote, the prophet, somewhat changed. Yet it is done without detriment to the understanding and tenor of the original. To invite the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, to joy in gladness the prophet abundantly gives us to understand that the coming of this king is most comforting to every sin burdened conscience since he removes all fear and trembling so that the men do not flee from him and look upon him as a severe judge who will press them with the law as moses did so that they could not have a joyful conscience of god As the knowledge and realization of sin naturally come from the law, but he would arouse them with this first word to expect from him all grace and goodness. For what other reason should he invite them, to rejoice and command them, even to shout and be exceedingly glad? So he tells this command of God to all who are in sorrow and fear of God. He also shows that it is God's will and full intent and demands that they entertain joyful confidence in him against natural fear and alarm. And this is the natural voice of the gospel which the prophet begins to preach, as Christ speaks likewise in the gospel. And the apostles always admonished to rejoice in Christ, as we shall hear further on. It is also full of meaning that he comes from the mouth of olives. We shall notice that this grace, on the account of its greatness, might be called a mountain of grace, a grace which is not only a drop or a handful, but grace abundant heaped up like a mountain. He mentions the people twice, while the evangelist says only once, Daughter of Zion, for it is one people, daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem, namely the people of the same city who believe in Christ and receive Him. As I said before, the evangelist quotes the scriptures only briefly and invites us to read them ourselves, find out more there for ourselves. That the evangelist does not invite to joy like the prophet, but simply says, Tell it to the daughter of Zion. He does it to show how the joy and exultation shall be carried on. None should expect bodily, but spiritual joy, a joy that can be gathered alone from the word by faith of the heart. From a worldly aspect, there is nothing joyful in Christ's entrance. His spiritual advent must be preached and believed, that is, his meekness. This makes man joyful and glad. The prophet gives Christ three titles, lowly, just, and having salvation, while the evangelist has only one meek, is again done for brevity's sake. He suggests more than he explains. It seems to me that the Holy Ghost led apostles and evangelists to abbreviate passages of scriptures for their purpose that we might be kept close to the Holy Scriptures, not set a bad example for future exegetes to make many words outside of scriptures and thereby draw us secretly from the scriptures to human doctrines. As to say, if I spread the scriptures verbatim, everyone will follow the example, and it will come to pass that we would read more in other books than in the holy writings of the principal book. And there would be no end to the writing of books, and we would be carried away from one book to another, till finally we could get away from holy scriptures altogether, as has happened, in fact. Hence, with such incomplete quotations, he directs us to the original book, where they can be found complete, so, that there is no need for everyone to make a separate book and leave the first one. We notice, therefore, that it is the attention of all the apostles and evangelists in the New Testament to direct us and drive us to the Old Testament, which they call Holy Scripture proper. For the New Testament was to be only the incarnate living Word and not Scripture. Hence, Christ did not write anything himself, but gave the command to preach and extend the gospel which lay hidden in the Scriptures as we shall hear on Epiphany Sunday. In the Hebrew language, the two words, meek and lowly, do not sound unlike. and mean not a poor man who is wanting in money and poverty, but who in his heart is humble and wretched, in whom truly no anger or haughtiness is to be found, but meekness and sympathy. And if we wish to obtain the full meaning of this word, We must take it as Luke uses it, who describes how Christ, at his entrance, wept and wailed over Jerusalem. We interpret, therefore, the words lowly and meek in the light of Christ's conduct. How does he appear? His heart is full of sorrow, compassion towards Jerusalem. There is no anger or revenge, but he weeps out of tenderness at their impending doom. None was so bad that he didn't or wished him harm. His sympathy makes him so kind and full of pity that he thinks not of anger or haughtiness, of threatening or revenge, but offers boundless compassion and goodwill. This is what the prophet calls lowly and evangelist meek. Blessed is he who thus knows Christ in him and believes in him. He cannot be afraid of him, but has a true and comforting confidence in him, an entrance to him. He does not try to find fault either, for as he believes, he finds it. These words do not lie nor deceive Word just does not mean here justice with which God judges, which is called severe justice of God. For if Christ came to us with this, who could stand before him? Who could receive him? Since even the saints could not endure it. The joy and grace of this entrance would thereby be changed into the greatest fear and terror. But that grace is meant, by which he makes us just or righteous. I wish the word. Justus or justitia were not used for severe judicial justice, for originally it meant godly and godliness. When we say he is a pious man, the scriptures express it. He is justus, he is justified or just, but severe justice of God is called in scriptures severity, judgment, tribunal. The prophet's meaning therefore is this, thy king cometh to the pious or just. He comes to make you godly through himself and his grace. He knows well that you are not godly. Your piety should consist not in your deeds, but in his grace and gift, so that you are just and godly through him. In this sense, St. Paul speaks, Romans three twenty-six, that he might himself be just and the justifier of him that have faith in Jesus. That is, Christ alone is pious before God, and he alone makes us pious. Also Romans 1.17, for therein is revealed a righteousness of God from faith unto faith. That is the godliness of God, namely his grace and mercy by which he makes us godly before him. It's preached in the gospel. You see in this verse from the prophet that Christ is preached for unto us righteousness, that he come godly and just, and we become godly and just by faith. Note this fact carefully. That when you find in the scriptures the word God's justice, is not to be understood of the self existing in the imminent justice of God as the papists and many of the fathers held, lest you be frightened. But according to the usage, of holy writ. It means the revealed grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ in us by means of which we are considered godly and righteous before him. Hence, it is called God's justice, or righteousness affected not by us, but by God through grace, just as God's work, God's wisdom, God's strength, God's word, God's mouth signifies what he works and speaks in us. All this is demonstrated clearly by St. Paul. In Romans one sixteen, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God which works in us, strengthens us, unto salvation to everyone that believeth. For, then in, for therein is revealed a righteousness of God, as it is written in Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Here you see that he speaks of the righteousness of faith, and calls the same righteousness of God preached in the gospel, since the gospel teaches nothing else but that who He who believes has grace and is righteous before God and is saved. In the same manner you should understand Psalms 31.1. Deliver me in thy righteousness, i.e. by thy grace, which makes me godly and righteous. The word Savior, Redeemer, compels us to accept this as the meaning of the little word just. For if Christ came with severe justice, he would not save anyone, but condemn all. As they are all sinners and unjust, but now he comes to make not only just and righteous, but also blessed all who receive him, that he alone as the just one and the Savior be offered graciously to all sinners out of unmerited kindness and righteousness. When the evangelist calls the steed at burden bearing, working full of an ass, he describes the animal the prophet's mean. He wants to say the prophecy is fulfilled in this burden bearing animal. It's not a special animal trained for this purpose according to the country's custom. Riding animals are, are trained. And When the prophet speaks of a foal, of an ass, it is his meaning that it was a colt, but not a colt of a horse. This has been an excerpt of Luther's sermon from the first Sunday in Advent. Touching upon the text of Matthew 21, verses 1 through 9, I hope you enjoy this reading from one of Martin Luther's sermons. Soon you will receive uh, uh, the second uh, official episode, where I will read the second sermon from the second Advent, from the second Sunday in Advent. I will read a section in which the title is The Comfort Christians Have When These Signs Appear. And it speaks of how we are to have heart in the face when the end of days arrives. This has been Voices of Church Past. I am your host, Rob Barnhart. Please tune in and please subscribe to the podcast. Rate review as that will help this podcast grow and reach more people so that people who need use of audio from the those who have come from the past can readily receive these materials keep in mind that not all people have such availability to such things and that if those of us who do enjoy such blessings would like and share this it could reach other areas where such things are not as readily available but in order for that To happen, you must support it. I only ask that you subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Till next time, may God bless you and keep you steadfast in the faith once given to the saints. So that I can see you all again on the great day, the great resurrection where all believers shall rise together and see each other once again free from sin, free from this world, able to worship and glorify God and love each other as we ought. Till then, take care and God bless.